Vice or virtue? Life lessons from the seven deadly sins. So what are the seven deadly sins even? It's not something we hear about too much in this day and age. We don't like to talk about sin a whole lot, and uh, especially ones that sound deadly. You know, what's up with that? Um, But the seven deadly sins are pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, lust, and gluttony. Now, you might be surprised to learn this isn't a list of sins that comes from the the Bible. You can't find a single chapter that has this list of seven seven sins, Um, but it's the result of some thoughtful Christian reflection over the years, and um, specifically in a monastery in Egypt where they pulled away from the demands of normal life and the temptations of the world and tried to live together in a Christian community. And, you know, that what they found out was, wow, even when we pull away from the world, even when we get out here alone in the desert, there's still some junk inside of us. There's still some stuff inside of us that God needs to deal with. And so... Thus came the seven deadly sins as they thought about it. And, and what is it and why and what's going on here? And so one of the big questions is, well, what, what makes them so deadly? You know, they, they don't necessarily seem so serious as some other sins that we might talk about. You know, um, anger kind of seems to pale in comparison when you think about murder. And, and greed probably isn't quite as bad in our minds as, as, as theft or embezzlement. You know, there are things that we think about that seem far more serious. Why call these the seven deadly sins? But they're deadly in the sense that they lead to spiritual death. The reality is, these seven sins, they're matters of the heart, not so much about behavior. They're about the orientation in our heart. Uh, You might remember Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount was talking, he was given a series of, you heard Moses say, but I tell you this, and going back and forth from Moses to what he was saying. And he was saying stuff like, you've heard it said by Moses, you shall not murder. Jesus said, but I'm telling you, if you've got anger in your heart toward your brother, it's just as bad. Moses said, you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if, if you look on a person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. These are the head sins, the chief sins, the sins that lead to all other sins. If you were to trace back from, you know, any given behavior sin, you're probably going to come to one of these seven deadly sins. These are the sins that name the sinful orientations of our hearts. So why are we going to take time to study them? Why are we going to take the next seven weeks to look at these seven sins? One reason is because there are sins. I don't know about you, but I hope most of you aren't struggling with the idea of committing murder when you leave church this afternoon. But how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you got angry with your spouse or your kids when you were getting ready to come to church this morning? I've been there. I've been there. 
So these are our sins, and they show us ourselves. You know, if we try really hard, we can usually control our behavior, at least for a period of time. But who, who among us, if we're honest, who can control their heart? Who can control the things that come up in our heart? So these seven, they show us where we still need God's help. They show us where we need God's grace and mercy. These seven sins, just like any other sins, separate us from God. And they separate us from those around us. And you know, God wants to do something about even these seven deadly sins. He wants to do something about them in our lives. But first, we have to acknowledge them, and we have to confess them. And we have to make a choice to turn away from them, to turn towards God. So that's the seven deadly sins. That's a little bit of where we're going over the next few weeks. But when you're talking about seven deadly sins, where do you start? We gave you a hint. Where do we start? We start with pride. We start with pride. C.S. Lewis called it a spiritual cancer. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote a whole chapter on it and called it the great sin. So we're starting with pride. And you know, the, those church fathers who were thinking about these seven deadly sins way back in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries, they talked about these seven deadly sins as a tree, as a tree. Out on the, on the ends of the tree, you've got the fruit, you've got the lying, the stealing, the, the whatever else. You've got those things out on the end, the, the arrogance, the conceit. As you get closer, you move into the seven branches, and those are the seven deadly sins. But then they said the trunk of that tree, the source of all of it, is pride. And so that's why we start with pride. Those seven deadly sins are all kinds of expressions, different expressions of pride. And the idea that I can provide for myself some level of happiness or control in my life. But how do we talk about pride as sin in a culture that somehow elevates it? We sing songs here in America. I'm proud to be an American. We, we're taught to take pride in our work. And we talk about successful people as being driven, and, and they're often proud. We have rallies and parades for different groups that are proud. We, we have psychologists telling us that you can't be happy without self-esteem and self-respect and self confidence. So if pride is this assertion of our self, where's the line between healthy sin, healthy, no, there's no healthy sin. Where's the line between healthy pride and unhealthy pride? Most people get turned off, they get put off when they see arrogance in another person, or they see conceit or vanity and someone else. It rubs us the wrong way when people are selfish or self-centered. So is pride okay? 
For us as Christians, is there any level of pride that's okay? Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, said that sin, in its essence, is a person that's turned in on themselves. That is, it's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. It's a focus on one's own self-interest. Pride at its base level, is an elevation of the self. This is pride. Think about, go back to, in your mental Bibles, to Genesis 11. After the flood, people are building a city, and they say, hey, let's build a tower that reaches up to heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves. Pride. They wanted to be remembered. They wanted to, to make a name for themselves. Or go back even further to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he says to them, you can be like God. Just take a bite. That's all you need. One bite and you can be like God. Pride always elevates the self. But in elevating ourselves, we naturally seek to put down others, right? If, if, we, can, if we can't build ourselves up anymore, we can push people down, and then maybe we look a little bit better. But in that process, pride separates us from people, from our relationships, from the people around us, and from God, when our relationships are defined by selfish pride, it harms those relationships. It harms those people that we're in relationship with. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe it's just me. But there are some people in my life, and I'm not going to name any names, so don't worry. But, but I think we all have these people who anytime we're in a, in a conversation with them, we're telling them something, and they can't wait. They can't wait to, to turn the conversation to themselves. They can't wait to, to take your story and, and start telling you about whatever story they have that's about them. Can anyone relate to that? Anyone? Maybe it's just me. Um, and, and I don't think they do it on purpose, but because they're so focused on themselves, it's, it's, it's all they know how to do. Now, I want to take a look at our scripture lesson today, back in Luke 18. And I want you to notice how Luke frames this parable. He said, Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness, to some who looked down on other people. Sounds like pride to me. And so he starts telling this story. Two, two men, they went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Now the Pharisees, they were the religious people. They were the church people. They were the ones who kept all the rules. In fact, they made extra rules to keep because they didn't think there were enough rules to keep. And they wanted to protect from breaking the really important rules, so they made even more rules to keep. The other was a tax collector. And the tax collectors were considered traitors and scum. 
Because they had sold out their people and they were taking taxes for the Romans who were oppressing the people, the Jewish people, as the occupying force. So you can imagine the people in the crowd, they start nodding. Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple to pray. We've got an idea of where this is going. They think that Jesus is going to call out that tax collector, that sinner. But what does Jesus do? He tells the, the Pharisee's prayer first. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a cheater or a robber or an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. His prayer is all about comparing with other people. It's all about putting other people down so that he looks better. But he doesn't just focus on other people. He says, I fast twice a week and I give my tithe. I give a tenth of all that I get. So he's comparing to other people to make himself look good. And he was telling God about why he was good, why he was good enough. But there was nothing about his heart. There was nothing about the Pharisee's heart in his prayer. Now, the tax collector's prayer, completely different. He stood off. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He was beating his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector understood who he was. The tax collector understood he needed God to have mercy on him because he wasn't good and he was never going to be good. And so he needed God's mercy. He acknowledged his reality. And he understood who he was before God. I imagine the people standing there still nodding. Yeah. Jesus is going to nail those, those sinners and those tax collectors, those sinners who even know that they're sinners. But then Jesus lowers the boom and he says, no, the tax collector... He went home justified instead of the Pharisee. The Pharisee, he he tried to make himself look good. But the tax collector understood who he was. And he understood he needed God's mercy. So not only did the Pharisee's pride elevate his self, but it separated him from others and from God. And ultimately, it negated the work of the grace of God in his life. Pride can take a lot of different forms from, you know, I know better or I'm not as bad as. I can handle this on my own. I can do life on my own. Again, in Mere Christianity, and C.S. Lewis is writing and he says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The Pharisee's good works could never justify him, could never make him good enough. And it's true for us. We can't receive the grace of God in our lives when we're trying to earn it ourselves. If we're looking down on things and people to make ourselves look better or feel better, we're missing out on what God wants to do in our lives. 
So what can we do about our pride? The reality is, no amount of self-effort can ever remove the self from within us. No amount of self-effort can ever get rid of the pride that's in our hearts. The more we focus on it, the more we focus on ourselves. But it starts with confessing the sin of pride in our lives. And like we said earlier, we need to turn and repent. We need to turn towards humility. When we choose humility, when we choose to, to lay aside our self and our pride, it, it allows God to come and illuminate who we are, who we are in our hearts. Humility allows God to illuminate who we are. We need to ask God to give us that mindset that Jesus had. Think with me for a minute about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. It was right after his baptism by John. Um, the, the Holy Spirit had come down in the form of a dove and rested on Jesus. And God had spoken from heaven and said, This is my Son whom I love. Jesus has just been affirmed in his relationship with God. He's just you know, been really lifted up. How many of you would want to hear, you're my son, you're my daughter? It helps to know who we are. So then, uh, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. And Satan comes and, and tries to play to his pride. Just like he did back in the garden with Adam and Eve. But he says to Jesus, if you're really God's son, three times he asked him, if you're really the son of God, then act like God. Take care of your hunger. Make these stones into bread. Throw yourself down from the temple. Bow down and worship me. But Jesus understood who he was, and he understood he was secure in his identity and his relationship with the Father. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he encourages Christians to have that same mindset that Jesus had. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. It's not going to be up on the screen, so if you want to read it yourself, you've got to turn there. Sorry. Um, but in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and Philippians is one of the letters in the New Testament, it's uh, towards the back of the Bible, um, but in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul is writing, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, do nothing out of pride, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be used to advance his own self-interest. Rather, 
He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus was modeling in his whole life, in his whole coming to live as a man. He was modeling the great commandments to love God and to love your neighbors. He wasn't about elevating himself. He wasn't about advancing his own self-interest. Everything he did, Philippians tells us, was for the sake of others. And this is the mindset that we are called to have. Humility illuminates who we are, but it also allows us to reciprocate in our relationships. You know that word reciprocate? It always makes me think of a saw that goes back and forth, a reciprocating saw. But, but that's what it is. It's that idea that in your relationships, there can be give and take. It's not just about what you get out of a relationship. It's about give and take, reciprocating in our relationships. It's valuing others, as Philippians says. It's about seeking their good, not your own self-interest. It's relating to them in a self-giving way, a way that gives of yourself for their good in a Jesus way, in a Philippians way. You know, then rather than Martin Luther's a heart curved in on yourself, Jesus can give you a heart that's curved outward toward others, a heart that seeks others' good. But it's only possible when the Spirit gives us that mind of Christ, as Christ lives in us. But humility also allows the grace of God to saturate our lives. When we choose humility, it helps us to understand our need for God. Just like that tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. We understand our need for God and his mercy. And then we can become people who are marked by grace rather than pride. In our relationship with God, marked by grace. In our relationship with others, with our wives, our husbands, our sons, our daughters relationships marked by grace. But I want to come back to that idea of the tree and its branches. Think about having a tree removed from your yard. Anyone ever had a tree removed from your yard? Yeah, bunch of you out there. Where do they start? They just hack it off at the bottom and come what may? No, what do they do? They start at the outside. They start trimming the branches in in and in and in, till they get closer and closer to the core, closer and closer to the trunk, and then only the trunk remains. But still, usually, they don't just hack it off right there. They take it down piece by piece by piece until it's down to just a stump. But, you know, if you stop there with your tree, just cut off as a stump, you know what can happen? That tree can start sending up shoots. It'll start growing again. Even if you grind out the stump and leave the roots there, those roots can still send up shoots because that tree is not yet dead. 
if you want the tree gone for good, you've got to deal with the roots. The same is true in our hearts. And today, I want you to think about as we close, is God speaking to your heart about some area where maybe you're elevating yourself, you're trying to advance your own self-interest that he wants to shine some light on and illuminate? Are you willing today to let him come and do a work in you that will deal a blow to the root of the tree so that God's grace can saturate your life and you can learn to live and relate in reciprocal self-giving ways, giving yourself away for the sake of others, just like Jesus did. Would you pray with me? God, we're so grateful this morning for the idea that you can come and do something in us that we could never do on our own. You can come and deal with the sin of pride in our lives in a way that, that we could never imagine. So God, we pray that you would come and give us the mindset of Jesus Christ. Give us that mindset that's turned outward toward others, that mindset that lays itself down for the sake of others, that mindset that's willing to, to be humbled, that's willing to, to take the low seat at the table, that, that mindset that's willing to be a servant if it means that someone else can be valued and come to know you. So God, would you come and do that work in us? Holy Spirit, give us the mindset that was in Christ Jesus so that we can lay aside our pride, so that you can come and illuminate our hearts and show us where we need your grace and your mercy. Whether, we've been follow, whether we're not even following you yet or we've been following you for years, God, would you come and do that work in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand as we sing a closing hymn, closing song?
a glorious way that you have saved me oh what a glorious day what a glorious So remember, pride always elevates the self, but, but humility illuminates who we are. Pride separates us from God and from others, but humility allows God to work in us and make us reciprocate in our relationships. Remember, pride negates the work of God in our lives, but humility allows the grace of God to saturate our lives. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.